Foxley is all about helping people to feel confident in dealing with difficult customers, build trust, and strong relationships. In this podcast, we talk to talented people to share insights and tips on how they do it. Welcome to Thinking Outside the Fox. Today on Thinking Outside the Fox, I am really excited to have Gemma and Russ from Two Drifters Distillery joining me to talk about sustainability. As founders of Two Drifters Distillery, the world's first distillery to have a carbon negative footprint, they created a self-imposed carbon tax, which forces the business to avoid creating CO2 emissions rather than offsetting the ones that have already been created. With Russ's chemistry background and Gemma's marketing skills, the two are making sure that Two Drifters rums are in the mix on the global rum stage, but they're leading the way when it comes to credible sustainability in the drinks industry. Russ, Gemma, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. It's great to be here. So we've done a bit of an introduction, but tell us about what you're doing right now. I, I love the concept and I love what you execute. Tell us, tell us about Two Drifters. So Two Drifters right now, uh, we're in our distillery in Exeter. Um, and we are just approaching the Christmas rush for rum and Christmas is definitely our busiest time. Uh, and we endeavor to be continue our carbon negative footprint, making amazing rum in the Southwest uh, together. Yeah, it's uh, it's the time where everything goes out the window right up until Christmas Eve. Um, and we basically just try and hold on and get through it all. Yeah. Because <laughs> you find us at a very busy phase. Yeah. So you, are you this family that on Christmas Day, you don't want to do anything because you've been so crazy up until that point that it's now do nothing, whereas other people are like, that's when their celebrations start. Yes. Yeah. Uh, December is manic. Um, and in, in a good way, it's really fun. Everyone's very positive and they all want to talk about rum. Like in the summer, we're kind of competing against gin and vodka, whereas Christmas, it's like, let's talk about rums and spiced rums. So it's really fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, come Christmas, it's time to just stop, not look at emails, not look at social media and just kind of regroup, isn't it? That's it. And then you get a rest the other side and it's, uh, yes, it's a nice time of year to take stock. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. So tell us about, uh, your journey through Two Drifters. How did you get to wanting and, and to now creating a carbon negative rum? Gosh, how many years ago was that? Yeah, so um, I guess it starts back a bit in terms of even before the distillery started, we we used to spend our time making alcohol in our spare time uh, 10 years ago, maybe? Well, I was in medical sales and you were in... Chemistry. Chemistry academia. Mm-hmm. We used to have fun by making beer and cider and wine. Yeah, and all sorts. Yeah. Um, and, and that was kind of a, a hobby activity back then where we had our day jobs. Then uh, chemistry took us to the other side of the world. So we moved to Vancouver with a um, 10-week-old baby. Yeah. And uh, there we kind of continued. Well, Gemma was on maternity leave and I continued with the chemistry academia. And that kind of drifted into, okay, what was the next step for us? How are we going to, uh, what was the career path? And I think being in Vancouver was such a great space for us because it's full of craft breweries. So we had a joke that Mm -hmm. on every street corner, there's a Starbucks, but also there's a craft brewery. And they do it so well. So we used to go in, like you get beer flights and beer menus. And it was just so well described. Also, there's a great um, kind of, 
entrepreneurial atmosphere. Spirit. Isn't there? It's that West Coast vibe that you get all along um, the, the States as well and Canada, where they're just yeah. fearless. They just go for it. So the seed of setting up our own company grew there. And I think it might not have done if we'd stayed in the UK. No. So the, that's where the kind of inspiration, I guess, maybe just the nudge to do something about it um, came from. Uh, and then I had another fellowship position that took us back to Swansea after that. Uh, and we spent two years there really honing the business plan and sorting out all of uh, how we get the licenses and what that looks like because we, we'd never owned businesses ourselves. Um, I was doing social media courses and marketing courses already yeah. for when you could take the plunge to move back to Devon to set up. It was always supposed to be a rum distillery. Yeah. Uh, that's our love. Even before I met Russ, it was rum. Um, <laughs> but oh, we just couldn't take the plunge, could we, to just dive deep into opening a rum so distillery? There's, there's a big gamble you have to take when you do uh, distilling. So to get your license to be a full distiller's license, you have to purchase all the equipment, install it into a commercial setting. So, you know, rent the unit, uh, yeah. install all the, and buy all the equipment. And then, only then, will HMRC interview you, come and visit you to a apply for a license. So you can't even apply for it before you've done uh, all of that. Yeah. And that's a huge, huge level of commitment when uh, yeah, Gemma and I, we sold our house to fund all of them. Yeah. Wow. So that gamble was, um, yeah, it was a big one for us. So we hedged a little bit and started with... Well, five years ago, the craft beer scene was just taking off here. We yeah. were very good at making beer. That's kind of where we practiced our fermentation skills. So we were like, right, okay, let's let's make beer whilst we then grow the rum. Yeah. So on in April twenty nineteen, yeah, we <laughs> opened. We had the unit for four months, and we opened with thousands of cans of a mediocre beer. Yep. And about mediocre beer. Sixty <laughs> bottles of a very very scary batch one rum. Yeah. No one wanted the beer. No one wanted to talk about the beer. Everyone was like, what? Rum made in the UK? Oh my gosh, this is amazing. So we only made three beers ever again. And then we turned the whole place into a rum distillery, which was the idea at the beginning, but we just weren't brave enough to do it. Yeah, we feel we were brave, but just not that extra bit. Yeah. There's a story that I love um, told by one of the founders of Innocent Smoothies. And he said that, they went on a, a ski holiday to talk about setting up a business and then went to a festival. I can't remember which festival somewhere in the UK and they were selling their kind of first batch of smoothies. And then they got the, the audience to vote to the audience, the, their customers to vote. So they, kind of had two bins and they said put the bottle in this bin if you think we should give up our jobs and do this for a living and put the bottle in this other bin if you think that we shouldn't and we should just carry on being accountants or whatever they were and um and and the end of that was when that that was they said the moment they realized that there was overwhelming yes you should make smoothies for a living and it sounds quite similar in that yeah. experience well, it's easy produce... to take someone else's life isn't yeah. it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but it is it is it is incredible that that you've done that and i think it's i was talking to a friend of mine a, a couple of years ago and he runs a company now where he supports small businesses to grow and one of the things he talks about he works for an international franchise and one of the things he talks about is in the u.s how 
they have a so the uk has a small business culture but we have a it's small businesses it's people who run their own companies in the us they don't think of starting anything without going big without making it like how are we going to make this into a world dominating organization and he said there's a there's a difference in the ambition and i guess that sounds like the a part of the dilemma that you had was we can't do this unless we make a significant investment. Yeah. Yeah. And and so that was kind of holding you back. And then, but the inspiration of being in Vancouver and seeing all these other people who have got, you know, living that vibe, I can see why you could be tipped over the edge there. It's totally that inspiration. And that's such an interesting point, Chris. We had this exact talk yesterday. <laughs> we get a lot of orders on our website and we have a lot of gift cards that I then write onto a cocktail card. And we get so many gift cards to people that say, I found this small, locally produced, low impact, carbon negative, amazing rum that I want you to try. And I'm like, I agree with all those points, but I, but don't, want, I don't want to be small. <laughs> Why is small a positive thing? Yeah, yeah, it is. There is something, and, and there's an interesting, um, again, I, I worked a few years ago with some guys who were in a huge um, beer organization and their job was business development their job was buying independent uh, breweries and kind of incorporating them into the main organization and they said that they had like th- th- there were two problems that they had one of the problems was that when people make great beer they don't often keep the recipes so they could go to these guys and say we really love this particular batch that you've created what you know what what was in it and they're like um you know a bit of this and you know some of that um so he said we we try and help them to standardize some of their processes but they were the reason why they wanted to buy these organizations is because there's a perception that as soon as it becomes inverted commas mass produced quality goes down and they're like it's the absolute opposite we bring more rigor and and mass mass produced brings rigor and quality standards to things but there is a there is a negativity towards big corporate that that kind of artisan manufacturers tend to maintain yeah and there's a fine tightrope that you walk uh where you transition across (laughs) i guess yeah so uh, we're talking about artisan breweries and this perception that small is better. Um, how do you think we get you get over that? What's your plan? I think it's storytelling. I think it's making sure that we have control over the story. And your reference to Innocent Smoothies, I mean, they got bought by Coca-Cola and they've done very well at keeping the Innocent branding going. So I think, obviously, that's not our destination to be bought by Coca-Cola, but we our ambition is to own one percent of the rum market it's to be big it's to have british sustainable rum at the front of all rum stories and uh, rum menus uh, i don't think the size of us is particularly going to diminish that story is it no the whole the whole setup is around scale and keeping the control that we have over the all aspects of the process um and keeping that internalized and, and integral to the business i think it's key i think that's the only way we're really going to show the drinks industry particularly how to be more sustainable and how to do things in a two drifters way is by getting big so uh, so you've touched on the on the sustainable element where did that come in in your story so if you go back to through your journey of wanting to produce rum and, and thinking about how you were going to do it at what point did you decide carbon negative um and 
what was that journey like to, to what not just to make that decision but then to realize the implications of that decision uh, so this this links back to the chemistry research that I did. So all the all the chemistry research that I, I've ever done has been in um, turning CO two into something with value. Uh, so you know, can, can you change CO two into uh, a commodity to, to yeah. incentivize people not to throw it up into the atmosphere? Right? If it's if it's just a waste material, you'll chuck it away. But if it's got value, you'll hold on. That's the idea. So yeah. from that perspective. Um, all my work for a decade was tied up in in looking into that, which meant that not only did I do my own research into it, but I read and understood other people's research in the area and knew of loads of different technologies and ideas of what could be done. Um, and when you're inspired by that, you know, along with the interest and the inspiration from Vancouver, um, that that really brings okay, you, you know that you want to make rum in the UK. You know that you're going to cause damage by bringing sugar a very long way because it, it's inevitable that the sugar has to travel a long way to get here. Mm-hmm. It doesn't grow here. And that impact is, is you know, significant. What are you going to do about it? Um, you could just not make rum, but we want to make rum. So how do we, how do we reconcile that with full knowledge of the damage uh, and full knowledge of options to um, do something about it. At that point, it was irresponsible to do anything else but think about how to achieve at least carbon neutrality. But mm-hmm. why not go further and really set an example? Because in the echo chamber world that I was in, in academia, you know, we were talking to lots of people about the problems and all the ideas of solutions, but nothing was getting done. Um, yeah. You know, and that's still really pretty much the case. We've, we've sat just before. Uh, COP28 and are we optimistic that much is going to change? Uh, no, probably not. So um, it's still the same problem. So how how can we achieve it? How can we set an example and show uh, a different approach? I remember having the conversation with Russ before we even found the name or what we were going to do. I think it was even maybe before Vancouver. We're talking about businesses being set up and it was like so many forms to fill in when do they ask you when you're not, how are you not going to hurt the planet and there isn't there's no form that you have to fill in to say how you're going to account for your carbon emissions and how you're going to be sustainable at that time and I was like that's mad that I can set up a business anywhere in the world and just hurt the planet I was like that I just still can't believe that's that can happen so before we even decided the rum distillery in Devon it was never going to hurt the planet because yeah. that's my ambition why should you have to um, deal with my carbon emissions when I want to own a rum Yeah. Which is fascinating when you think about it, because there are, I mean, just in, you were talking earlier on about licensing, mm. getting a license to produce and distill alcohol in the UK means that you have to be tested and approved and checked because they don't want you to kill anybody yeah. and, and to poison yeah. people. You expand that slightly and then you've got industrial rules about what you need to do with your waste products yes. because you can't just go and throw them in the, you know, down, you know, down the toilet, should we say, or whatever, because they need to be managed. Yeah. And I guess what you're arguing is just a simple extension of that yeah. is to kind of say that, you know, I might be producing some toxic substances that I have to legally, you know, manage safely, 
why don't we do the same thing with carbon is your is your argument yeah that's exactly exactly my argument and i we often say if carbon had a color i think people would be a lot more accountable and responsible for it i think just because they can't see it they don't know it's being produced and they can just turn a blind eye but we're so conscious of it that every every decision we make is about right how much carbon does that produce yeah and then, then comes the, the trick in terms of how you make sure that that's always accountable and always part of the process, which is to bake it into the cost of producing your goods and have a financial penalty if you don't consider it, um, which is the other the other trick, right? A, a carbon tax that's built within Two Drifters' walls is, uh, is, is the way that we keep ourselves honest uh, on that approach. And th- that then leads on to how we achieve the carbon negative footprint as well. So just expand on that a little bit. A carbon tax within two drifters. Yeah. yeah so uh, producing carbon costs us money. <laughs> the commitment that we make as a as a business is to partner with Climeworks. So Climeworks were a, a company. Um, they're based in Switzerland, but I met them at a CO two conference, um, and their technology has it, it's called direct air capture. So it, it sucks CO two straight from the atmosphere. It's then um, converted into stone, so mineralized and permanently stored underground, which offers you a, a way to permanently remove CO2 emissions from the atmosphere so that they never return, um, mm-hmm. which is an entirely different prospect to um, offsetting through trees where inevitably the CO2 does end up back in the atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. So this, this is a different route. The, the problem with that is that it's hugely expensive technology to run. The plant that they have is uh, based in Iceland um, and relies on the geothermal energy and the, the the CO2 is mixed with water and injected 800 meters underground, right? So this is all big scale stuff that's required. So it's expensive, um, yeah. which means that for every ton, you know, it's maybe 10 times the price of any carbon tax that exists in the world at the moment for us to remove it. Um, and what that means is that we have to work very hard not to cause the CO2 emissions in the first place. So the biggest thing that Two Drifters does is to avoid as much as possible. And and then you don't have to pay this tax that we impose on ourselves to remove it. And and this is an argument that's being used a lot by government, uh, well, by, by campaigners to say, let's let's start taxing people. Yeah. But it's, it's not because they want to increase taxes. No. It's this is to drive and change behavior because the financial penalty is designed to well, for you guys, it forces you to be more creative about avoiding carbon. Yeah, it, exactly. So most distilleries are gas-fired. In fact, I think nearly like nearly all distilleries are gas-fired. Before we even started deciding what distillery we we're going to have, we knew we couldn't have a gas-fired distillery because we couldn't then remove that carbon created with Climeworks. Money-wise, it just wouldn't work. So we have an electric distillery, an all-electric distillery that works perfectly, run on 100% renewable energy. And so that's one simple decision that we made at the very beginning that now has a huge impact on how much carbon we create. Yeah. And did that make a difference in terms of how you set up or was it just a, a choice that you make or does it have an impact on other elements? No, it does. It does have an impact because um, it, it's it's hard to retrofit old fashioned star stills, you know, Alembic, big copper things. Those Those kind of, those are difficult to electrify. Um, unless you get to a certain scale. So th- there comes a question where you switch over into, um, yeah, it, how big a distillery are we talking? Um, because 
electric steels as we have them, which are heating elements inside stainless steel containers uh, with copper tops. Those are, are, are very easy ways to do um, distilling electrically, but you have a limit as to how big you go. And we pretty much are at that limit, so about 2,000 litres. But stills that exist for big bigger distilleries are more like 30,000, 40,000 litres and up from there. Okay. To electrify that, you need to generate your steam that you use to heat the stills. So instead of firing from a big gas, you generally have a gas boiler that heats up the water to create the steam. That's what heats the stills. Um, so yeah. you need an electric version of that or a hydrogen version of that, say. Um, those are kind of like large scale renewable options. And that's where most people fall down because it's it's expensive, a big capital expense to, to get that set up. And effort and energy yes. that you think yeah. but in the long yeah. run yeah. from us it would be more expensive for us to have yeah. a gas because we'd have to then pay for that gas to be removed so even though up front it might be more expensive down the line it saves us carbon tax yeah for instance and i guess I was say when it comes to like decisions on our labels for instance, it was cheaper for us to get them printed in yorkshire than it was for us to get them printed next door in dorset but we went with the printer in dorset because the carbon emissions, getting them here is lower. So overall, the price is lower for us to have our labels. Yeah, and, and, and this kind of connects to something we're, uh, we're, I'm fascinated by in terms of the sustainability agenda. And we've already talked to Hayne on the, the podcast in this series, and he talks about tracking through supply chain. So he, he runs a company where they provide dashboards and technology that allows organizations to see various different elements of how they impact um the climate or sustainability and and encouraging companies the example he gives is a chocolate manufacturer you know what your suppliers impact is as well so you get to see the whole thing and and this is one of those elements where people say well i can i can buy it cheaper elsewhere and shortening supply chains so that you buy more locally seems more costly but also, as you're, you're trying to say, is that it's a short-term cost versus a long-term cost. If you think, if you're truly thinking about sustainability, then being able to say, well, you know, I've reduced carbon by X amounts by by buying something close to home. That's better. Exactly. That is exactly it. And the issue I have from a marketing point of view is shouting the credibility of our story over other sustainability stories because we go from cradle to grave we go literally from the every war ingredient we use the glass bottles the labels what merchandise we sell how we run our distillery what packaging the recycling of the bottle we follow those carbon emissions the whole way but it's really hard to put that very succinctly in my marketing story compared to other people that just say, other distilleries say, sustainably made rum. And it's like, at what point can we start comparing sustainable stories? Yes. <laughs> and, and, and what do you, diff- you know, how, how do you see that moving forward? Do you see that we're going to have to start quantifying more clearly? Yeah, I think um, what will be interesting, and I was listening to a, a good article this week, uh, probably in The Economist. Um, what would be interesting is when we move to a phase where it becomes a bit like financial reporting for a business. Um, and so it's it's mandatory. Everyone has to have it. It's standardized. Uh, and there's just an entire industry that deals with a company's audit. And everyone knows, because same with money, 
everyone knows the rules and we have to adhere to it. You know, if you are forced to report things in the same sort of way, um, yeah, the, the industry would move fairly quickly to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no one, no one would ever think of setting up a business without an accountant yeah, and accounting exactly. software and, and, and having to submit your books at the end of the year to the government exactly. to be accountable for the tax you need to pay. And, and it seems sensible to have the same kind of approach. You right? can kind of see that coming, right? That, I, that, I don't see how they avoid that. I never thought we'd be talking so much about our sustainability work because when Russ and I set up Two Drifters, the most exciting thing was that we were making rum in England. The fact that we were doing it without hurting the planet was our choice. That's how we want to run a business. And I was hoping by now that our sustainability work would still just be a footprint at the end of kind of our rum story. But it seems it's not it's not changing quick enough. What we're doing is still kind of new. New. And I just I worry that we're seen as this credible sustainability rum distillery and that scares me a bit because there should be other people doing it. Well, it's interesting because I talked to a lot of clients and and there has been a sense over the last three to five years of organizations moving towards sustainability. Now, some of them are greenwashing, there is no doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are making genuine attempts to try and do some positive things. Um, all of them, I think, I'll say, I'm going to say all of them have done so with the intention of being able to get an advantage about yes. it. So be able to tell their consumers and for the consumers to, to say, wow, this is amazing. We're now going to buy your product or we're now going to spend more on your product because you're supporting um, our climate yes. um, needs and requirements. The feedback from consumers though is, yes, of course you should be. Yeah. You know, it's like a shoulder, a shoulder shrug of like, what do you want me to do? Right. You, it's just common sense and it and it comes to some of the things you've already talked about of like you you guys set up the distillery it was always going to be sustainable not because not because you wanted a commercial advantage but because you just believed in it and there's a sense that that's the zeitgeist the consumer now is saying of course you should right i don't want to be buying stuff from people who are willingly destroying the planet um but it's not going to make me buy your stuff. And I know we've had this conversation before, which is the first and foremost thing is high quality, excellent rum. Yep. And it is, by the way. Um, but but also, but uh, and the sustainability is a secondary thing. And I, and I can't help worrying that organizations are losing motivation because it isn't giving them the commercial advantage, especially at a time where, price seems to matter a lot yeah and on world service last night they were talking exactly that saying sustainable products can't have a price premium it, they've got to be a given a given same price if not cheaper than the non-sustainable option for any of this to work for me that links back to what uh, has to happen which is to price in the impact um i don't i don't see how you avoid that uh, and governments leading the way in terms of demanding that businesses do it because the, the market itself hasn't, exactly as you're saying, it hasn't sorted it out. Customers, either there's too much information that's required to know, um, like basically making a choice. When you make a choice, when you buy something off a shelf, how on earth do you know all the different ins and outs and intricacies that go into making that product? And therefore, are you making the best decision? It's, it's almost impossible. Um, across every category so how on earth do you get to a point where that's like nice and easy for people to understand um, and all consumers get it I I just don't see that happening through market alone 
And therefore, you've got yeah. to imagine that government has to step in in order to encourage that. Hence the COP meetings. And my hope is still high. And this is why we've been on this journey with ingredient lists. You know, if we talk about other parallels from other things, ingredient lists are a good example that um, we, we you have to put ingredients on the side of packaging, but nobody expects consumers to really understand everything mm-hmm. and understand all the different E numbers and all the other elements that are added to it. Um, and that's why we have um, agencies who are designed to check the safety and, and security of yeah food quality and food supply chain and all these things and in the same way as accounting again you're just asking the same question of um because i think there's an there's a sense that some organizations turn a blind eye to what's happened in their supply chain if if someone else brings them the sugar then it's not their problem how it gets basically yeah because you're so you're removed from that process and you just if you're driven purely on price which you probably are um yeah why why worry about it and it's so true in the spirits world because a lot of spirits aren't made where the name was on the bottle they buy in the ready-made spirit and then either repackage or re-spice and then repackage so they don't really have to account for that because they didn't make it and it's Mm. yeah and we kind of i think we kind of get ourselves into a bit of trouble because we talk about everything and we're so transparent in what we do that people assume everyone's like us. So if you're buying our rum, any rum would like that. And it's not the case. And we're only a small voice and we're up against huge budgets for marketing who can shout loud and, and people believe them. And I, I don't know how you tell one credible story over another. No, without intervention or in, indeed your packaging um, comment, it, it links to the traffic light system, right? For for all the different um, ingredients and yeah. yeah, how harmful a, a food product is, you can imagine a situation where it's the same sort of thing for looking at environmental impact. Yeah, no, and, and, and hugely complex. So let's change direction slightly and let's talk a bit about your journey as you've started to to build and open the distillery and expand the operations. What, are the, what have been the biggest lessons for you and what have been the biggest surprises as you've you know, you clearly had a great idea, and then, but bringing ideas from page from page to reality is very different. What have been the lessons and the surprises that you've experienced over the last few years? COVID. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, ignoring, obviously ignoring COVID. ignoring COVID is quite hard. So we had maybe nine months before that changed uh, who we sold to. Um, so I think the the first lesson I'm going to mention is that uh we learned where our rum works i guess the first thing you start out is you want everyone to love it you want every consumer anywhere in the world to pick up a two drifters bottle drink it drink a nice uh, cocktail made with it and love it and that and never drink anything and never, yeah and that's just <laughs> never i mean that's a quick quick lesson that you learn firstly you don't need every customer but also, you're never going to please everyone, and you should, nor should you. It's those people that come up to you at your bar or at your stand and go, oh, I don't like rum. Okay, then don't try it. Oh, no. Well, I'll try yours. And then they try ours, and they go, oh, God, no, still I don't, don't, like, still rum. don't like rum. <laughs> and you're like, okay, good. Well, that was a good lesson. Yeah, exactly. We're not going to win everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a good learning. That's yeah. my learning, anyway. <laughs> and, did, but, and so did you have a time when you were, were trying to please yeah, everyone? Yeah. Oh, yes. And we'd lower costs to fit in, and we'd kind of, offer free packages oh my gosh we do so much and at the end of it we're like why why did we do that why did we do this this isn't what we wanted to create at all 
So that that's lesson number one. Yes. Well, what else did you? What else have you learned over the last few years? Um, I I think a big one for me is we we're getting into much bigger markets now. We're kind of getting out of the local cottage industry into kind of we export to a lot of countries. We're at the realm on British Airways. We're uh, just getting into some really big names in London. We're now the house realm at Jamie Oliver. It's uh, it's those conversations take on such huge numbers when you're talking about it and the margins you get at the end are anything what you thought you're going to get out of it and I realized that yeah the drinks industry smaller right let's yeah, be clear exactly. they're smaller than you thought yeah and my thing about those worlds and we were talking about it today is that on the menu when you go to have your three-course meal they'll tell you where the beef is from they'll tell you that the vegetables are locally grown and organic they'll tell you the name of the farmer that picked your potatoes but then the drinks menu is just a generic, a generic standard yeah. drinks menu you could get anywhere and i don't know why yeah. we're so slow on making the drinks menus more exciting and that's where vancouver did it so well you got you you want everything it was so nicely described and carefully picked and i want these places to start doing that with their drinks I thought that would be easy. Here's an amazing run. You need to make put this on your menu. It doesn't work like that. It's no. very slow. But it does with wine. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. Wine has a lovely story. It's very romantic. Spirits, they're kind of neglected. Beer's all about volume. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a funny kind of murky world. And really, those are commercial decisions. So the spirits is seen as a way uh, to fund a lot of uh, these, the bars and the groups. What about. Um in terms of how you've adapted to expansion and maintaining your carbon negative. Because I guess that there's an impact then that the more you produce, the more expensive it becomes. Is it, has it been proportional? Has it always followed that you, your maths always add up? Yes, we've yeah. got even more exciting plans from a carbon negative point of view. Yeah, so um, it, it's built in as a cost of goods sold. So um, it's in our cogs the it, it's basically another ingredient it's the carbon removal it's it's like anything else you try and drive the cost down um through well in this instance you're looking at how do we avoid carbon within our supply chain or any of our processes uh, or even onward journey so you constantly strive to drive down costs as you should as a business um and that means that it, it doesn't matter what the scale is right the, the scaling just is scaling we've built in the margin that we need to make the distillery work uh, and all of our pricing and therefore yeah as we grow great we we sell more rum and, and we it works the business works what i love about it though is that the bigger we get and the louder voice we get rather than going to our suppliers like everyone does and go make this cheaper we're like make this lower carbon emissions like we'll buy more we can do more we can remove more carbon if you make this greener uh, and it's conversations they're not used to having isn't it no. <laughs> some of them are like what <laughs> what are you asking us and like we want to know exactly where that came from and it's kind of getting them to ask questions about themselves isn't it it is yeah and you certainly open up eyes to everyone i guess that we deal with and that's the whole point right is, is to show them how we do things and, and even if they take a little bit of what we do that's that's progress but with it, when it comes to the growth that you talk about Chris for five years now uh, Russ and I have had a huge um, kind of divide in getting the distillery bigger so we can make more rum so yeah. we can remove more carbon so we can make more rum so we can remove more carbon 
the marketing side of it has always been not an afterthought, being, well, do that. When, suffered. Yeah, she she suffered. suffered, basically, yeah. I, I basically squeezed the life But now the marketing. distillery is at the point where we can make so much rum and we can remove so much carbon and we've got solar panels, we've got everything. This distillery is amazing. We Marketing now needs to shout. We need to shout about what we're doing here. We need brand presence. We need... Uh, can PR campaigns and like yeah. and the ability to fight the the big the big teams that that have got all the big marketing budget. You know, you think Bacardi is is a huge portion of yeah. UK rum. It's half the rum sold here, and their budget is phenomenal, right? And so that's the voice we've got to fight. How do we do that? But I can't go get a billboard campaign because billboard paper is really unsustainable. So I can't be advertising my carbon negative rum on paper that can't get recycled. So it's a very clever. Uh, oh, yes, yeah. you've got to be smarter with every decision. Everything. I have a carbon tax on marketing. <laughs> but which is part of the challenge, right? And I think that's where I think organizations who are trying to mimic what you're doing and trying to, to be inspired by what you're doing will find it really hard yeah. because they <clears throat> it, it it's they they're trying to do it eighty yeah. percent. You know, they're trying to let's let's be more aware of our waste or our recycling or our impact or whatever it is now let's tell everyone about it and let's let's upsize our you know advertising campaigns to tell everyone that we're doing all these kind of things and i guess that's the challenge that organizations face is that there's always that commercial pressure that seems to oversimplify like let's take this out because it just sounds like extra cost that we don't need yeah yeah easily done that and we say we, we so, compete on the run market our runs are incredible only getting better that's where we compete mm. from a sustainability point of view there's no competition no one wins we'll, we'll be as transparent as anything we'll support anyone that wants to know more about what we do take it yeah basically. take what we do make make us better like let's compete with you on that let's make us make us better yeah so so what would be your advice then just on that to other businesses other organizations who are either thinking about trying to be more sustainable or or someone is wanting to set up a business which is more sustainable and carbon negative what would your advice be on how to go about it or what where to start or you know where the where the the opportunities are that you can see you're, you're, you've got a good answer for this yeah it's, it's always the same answer i give to this question i love this question but you you measure it the first thing you have to do you cannot know what you haven't measured so you must measure uh what your impact is and then once you've done that you will see where those quick wins and then where the longer term strategy has to come from um but if you don't measure it you are just making decisions because you hear that it's a good thing to do you are uh, yeah, just it's like our glass bottles. Before we redesigned them, we used to just get them delivered to us at the distillery, and you just take your glass pocket, glass bottle, fill it, put a cork in it, and that was it. The minute we thought, let's work out how these glass bottles got here today, and the journey they went on was absolutely insane. So then we knew our hotspots from a carbon dioxide point of view with the glass bottle. We knew instantly where we could make a win by lowering carbon emissions by having. British glass, lighter glass. It's not like you there is a good example, actually. Um, it, it's not like you can just ask your glass uh, wholesaler in that instance, uh, who, yeah. well, where, where did this come from? What journey is this come from? Because they don't, they don't really think about it. So you basically just, you can use the stickers on the palette to trace the journey. And so those glass bottles were manufactured in Italy. They then went to Slovenia, to France, 
and then to a distribution center in the UK. And then they were, so that's a lot of diesel being burnt right across Europe um, just yeah. to move glass to us. And, you know, the, we switched quite quickly to um, a Yorkshire based company so that we know it's one lorry straight down from the glass manufacturer to us. British glass and a lot lighter. And lighter as well. Yeah. And do you do you incorporate things like the fact that glass is reusable? Because I've heard an argument. I honestly was looking for a product recently. I think it was a protein powder, um, and I wanted to find something which had a, a better environmental impact. And I, I did manage to find one in the end. But the first company I looked at said, "Oh, we've decided not to use uh, either recycled plastic or other or alternatives because." Um, the impact, the carbon impact of those things is greater than than glass. Uh, than glass. Yeah, than, than plastic. They were saying. Oh, okay. So, so um, we're not bothering. And I, I just, I didn't accept that. Um, do you think about the impact of the glass after you've used it, and that someone could reuse it, recycle it? This is a What's big your... story in the spirits industry at the moment. <laughs> And we get ourselves into a little bit of difficulty sometimes because, you know... We don't follow the crowd. We don't follow the crowd. And there are friends of ours in the, the spirits industry um, that, that do exactly what we wouldn't do. Okay, so here is where it's difficult because there is no metric to measure um, exactly what the, the damage is. What you're talking about is the circularity of materials. So um, plastic is not circular. You dig up fossil fuels, you make plastic... Even if you recycle it into something else, it doesn't go back into the original plastic um, form that you were uh, that you'd produced. It goes down a, a, a gradient to basically landfill, and yeah. uh, it, it de degrades each time you recycle it. So maybe you get maximum five uses out of your plastic, and then it's done. The, yeah. the same is absolutely not true for glass. Glass is infinitely recyclable. A glass bottle can be a glass bottle. A glass bottle can be another glass bottle. The d difficulty in the spirits world as it stands today is that um, most, I mean, even good glass manufacturers can't get clear glass, so completely colourless glass, I should say, um, with 100% recycled. It always has a green tint. So there, there is work and chemistry, you know, there's, there's always chemistry. There's work to be done <laughs> to improve that. But they're getting closer. They're, oh. up, they're up near 70-odd percent now with actual colourless glass, which is phenomenal. But... That difference is critical. So in the spirits world, glass bottles, infinitely recyclable, um, but as it stands today, they're heavy uh, compared to plastic and therefore the transport emissions are, are bad. They're a bad aspect. But fast forward five, maybe even only five years and transport will be vastly decarbonized, right? It's very possible there are electric lorries already yeah. on the roads. It's very possible to decarbonize um, that part of the supply chain. And if you then look at a world where you've decarbonized the transport, this infinitely recyclable material versus the virgin plastic, which degrades over five cycles, ends up in landfill. Ends up in landfill. It's a straight choice that, that glass is a better material to go for in the long run. Um, but it's a difficult argument right now because today, as it stands, it's probably better for the carbon emissions. So you cause lower emissions if you use a plastic, you know, surrounded in, in our case, we have, we come up against a bag in a box. So think of a box wine, yeah, um, the yeah, bag in yeah. a box. So they call them paper bottles. Those are just paper bags, uh, plastic bags in a 
paper bottle um, or yeah, the bulk containers with bag in the box. And those are less carbon intensive because there's less glass to move around, but only purely because the road transport hasn't been decarbonized. And as a brand, I cannot believe I would be advocating to tell you, my consumer, that it's okay to buy this plastic bag that will end up in landfill. Like, yeah, that, that's what shook, that's what surprised yeah. me. It was the just end, that's too much. I looked it up, and I and they they kind of fronted up and went, yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. Lighter. It's lighter. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. look, we've run out of time as as we always do. So thank thank you very much. Uh, final thoughts on what's your advice to a business who wants to do more? Um, how can they get in touch with people who can help them? How can they find out more information if they're kind of really thinking about how to do this? So there, there are two great organizations that I would recommend just reading uh, what, what they get up to. Um, one is um, the Carbon Trust in terms of thinking about your carbon footprint and the measuring I was talking about. And then the other one is, of course, science-based targets. Um, those that that is an excellent um, organisation that's probably forming the framework that the rest of the world's going to uh, follow. Mine's a bit more generic, and I can get quite negative about it. People go, at least at least we're doing something. <laughs> I really dislike that phrase. At least at least they've started doing something. It's not good enough anymore. Everyone just has to do more and more and more, and don't settle on one thing. Like all points look at all points of your business to see what you can do to lower carbon emissions and maybe just question it right even just the first two questions normally lead you to either oh this is a greenwashing thing uh, or you know why don't they do that yeah um yeah a couple of questions in every time and it makes the world a difference beautiful thank you very much so the most important thing, how can people get hold of some Two Drifters Rum? Everywhere. <laughs> Our website, yeah, twodriftersrum.com. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Masters of Malt. Uh, yeah. Lots of bars. If you're ever at a cosy club, have a pineapple and cake. Anyone flying on British Airways can have one at 32,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> and which is the one you're going to recommend to people? I know you have a few different varieties. Oh, it's Christmas, so I'm going to recommend the Lightly Spiced. Get it in some ginger ale with a wedge of lime and some ice, and it's just perfection. Our mince pies have been soaked in in lightly spiced rum. Yeah, it's not too sweet, it's like a lot of spiced rums. It's just delicious. So good. Sounds perfect. Thank you very much for your for talking to us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Cheers. That was Thinking Outside the Fox with me, Chris Weber. Our next episode is out in two weeks. Join us for more great conversations on how to build winning customer relationships. I'm looking forward to it.